Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. On this episode of Most Notorious, one of the most historically important and defining moments in American history, the 1770 Boston Massacre. The people, however, do not disperse, and they're standing around, and you have to remember it's quite dark, and they're quite close to these soldiers, and somebody hears the word fire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So glad you are here with me and so glad to have as my guest Serena Zabin. She is a professor of history and director of American Studies at Carleton College and the Broom Fellow for Public Scholarship. And she is here to talk about her book, The Boston Massacre, A Family History. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so pleased to be here. Thank you for asking. So the Boston Massacre is a very famous incident in American history. It's one of those things that's taught to everyone in school. What is different about your book from what has been taught before, written about before? So as a rule, what we know about the Boston Massacre pretty much comes from that one image that Paul Revere engraved in 1770. It's probably reproduced in every American history textbook um, that has been printed for over 100 years, um, in part because actually it's one of the very few images we have of 18th century America. But what we know from that picture is pretty much um, a line of soldiers who are shooting at a group of Bostonians, all of them also men, with the exception of one woman standing right in the middle, sort of with her hands up to her breast looking horrified. And we see pretty much soldiers on one side of the street and civilians on the other and lots of indications from Revere that this is meant to be a political story. So he entitles one of the buildings, the one that the soldiers are supposedly protecting, which was then the Customs House. He retitles it Butcher's Hall, just in case anybody missed the story that said, well, really, the butchers are here are the soldiers. So. The story that we basically know are 
soldiers, a line of soldiers deliberately, purposefully mowing down a set of civilians in the street and looking as though they never knew each other whatsoever. But in fact, the story I ended up finding was that that was not either what the Boston Massacre or really what Boston looked like at all in 1770. The story I ended up finding was one of connection that really the soldiers and the civilians knew each other really well. They were neighbors and not strangers to each other. And then the other piece of the story that nobody had ever really looked at before that I think changes everything is the realization that these soldiers who came to Boston at the end of the British Empire, though nobody really knew that that was the end of Boston as part of Britain, then when those soldiers came, they came with families. And the presence of the women and children who traveled with the families really changed everything about how Boston felt at that moment. So just to follow up on your mention of Paul Revere's famous engraving of this event, it's basically, when you look at it, at the picture, there are two sides divided by a wall of smoke. The fact that one of the buildings is labeled Butcher Hall, like you said, um, obviously a piece of propaganda. What are some of the other images in that picture that are exaggerated or just aren't correct? So some of the ones are um, are pretty obvious. Uh, we see actually the picture above Butcher's Hall. You can see two muskets, probably or rifles, sticking out of a window, shooting also at the civilians, these little puffs of smoke. You see also a very foreshortened picture of Boston that has lots and lots of church steeples, so that what you're really supposed to be seeing there is um, how God-fearing the town of Boston was, right? This is a, a place of you know very serious, devout people. Another piece of what should we say, slanted truth that Revere is trying to show us here really has to do with the way the soldiers are depicted on the street. They're they're all lined up very carefully and the captain who is urging them on is standing safely behind them as though he knew what was going to happen, waving his sword and clearly shouting. You can see his, his mouth is open and all the soldiers are leaning forward shooting at exactly the same moment. We don't know much about what happened that night, and I can talk a little bit in a moment about the little bit that we do know, but certainly part of what we know is that there was not a single volley that came from these soldiers, although that's exactly what the image seems to be showing. So let's take a step back, um, if you don't mind. Um, Maybe we can do a real basic history of the city and talk about the tensions that were brewing in the time leading up to the massacre. Absolutely. So so Boston in 1770, I think it's helpful for us all to remember, was very small. It's about one square mile. It's just a peninsula. Lots of what we now know as Boston was then pretty much somewhere between swamp and water. The Back Bay, as probably people know, is, gets all filled in with you know, landfill and garbage in the 19th century. So it's much smaller than it is today. And it's about 16,000 people for its population, which actually means it's got a population density not so different than its current population density, but all much smaller. So 16,000 people, it's, you know, 
it's not exactly a village, but it's pretty much a town. Okay, and and it was referred to as the town of Boston. So in 1770, I think it's worth remembering that Boston was nowhere near revolution. Nobody was. There are troops in Boston because of the after effects of a war that had ended a few years earlier. So starting in 1756, the there's pretty much a global war that comes to be known in North America as the Seven Years War, sometimes known also as the French and Indian War because the British are fighting against the French and the Indians in all, all across North America. They're fighting in other parts of the world also. But in North America, the British finally win this war in 1763. And as a result, the French withdraw all of their claims to most of Eastern North America. So a lot of what is now Canada, they say, okay, you know, we, we're not even going to pretend that this is part of our empire anymore. The indigenous people, of course, never do um, cede their land. And so the British have to now figure out how they're going to have relationships with these former French allies who are still there and all of these British colonists who are living in other parts of North America. And they have to figure out how to pay for what was a very long and very expensive war. So when they do that, they decide, you know, they have to raise some money. They raise taxes. Um, and they try to cut down on smuggling and other ways that people are trying to evade taxes. And they do this in part by sending um, officials, customs officials to various ports in North America to try to collect taxes more efficiently. And this is incredibly unpopular, especially in Boston, which is a pretty vibrant port city at this moment. And Bostonians riot, actually. They have a number of you know, um, kind of theatrical, but also sort of scary riots. They burn some buildings. They, um, they protest loudly and the governor is pretty afraid, actually. So he, he decides he needs some backup from the British government. There's no police force in North America. There's a, there's a watch. There's constables, but there's no real police. Instead, the, British Empire tends to use peacetime regiments, their own army, as police force when they need them, both for smuggling, to cut down on smuggling, and also to protect um, officials and to shut down rioting. And there's a lot of rioting in 18th century Britain because lots and lots of people don't have the vote. So basically the way people show their political opinions is in the street. We call that politics out of doors. So there's a lot of riots, magistrates, governors, mayors, they hate riots. So they're always asking the army to come and put them down. Then when the army actually shows up, they realize, oh, actually, it's a lot of work trying to control these soldiers. I kind of wish we didn't ask for them. After all, they're always regretting and trying to get them sent back. So in 1768, the governor of Massachusetts requests some troops, and but he doesn't want to admit to the town of Boston and Boston officials, the selectmen that he's done this. So he sort of tries to do it kind of backhandedly. And in October of 1768, there are four regiments are sent to Boston. So that's about 2000 men. And they come with something close to 500 
about five or 600 women and children come to Boston also between October and February of 1768, 1769. And when they come to Boston, they find themselves embroiled in this big debate about where they're going to live. So Boston has already a set of barracks that are out in Boston Harbor that are now connected by landfill through Dorchester, a place called Castle Island, which has, you know, great hot dogs and a lovely beach, but then was about three miles by boat, if you're going to row it, seven miles to march around by land, pretty far out. But they've got barracks that had been refurbished for the Seven Years' War. And the Boston selectmen say if there are going to be troops in Boston, they should stay in the barracks. That's actually what the 18th Century Quartering Act says. The 18th Century Quartering Act is very clear that soldiers have to be quartered first in existing barracks. If there are not barracks that they can live in, then they're to be put in public houses, which, you know, that's why they're called public houses. But of course, that's what we come to know as pubs, right? And so putting soldiers in bars is a a difficult decision, one that many commanding officers are reluctant to make. And only, however, if there are no barracks and no public houses available, can they then be quartered in private houses. And so the town selectmen say there are barracks. You can't put soldiers in private houses in Boston that if you try to do so, we'll get you kicked out of the army. We'll have you cashiered. But the governor wants soldiers right in the heart of Boston. He doesn't want them three miles out in the harbor. He wants them close by so they can put down riots if they start happening right you know, in front of his house or right in front of the seat of government, which is the townhouse. So eventually, after a lot of backing and forthing and putting these poor soldiers who are camping out, they, they they put the soldiers to camp in the middle of Boston Common. Some of them are sleeping on the floor of Faneuil Hall. They finally come up with a arrangement. They kind of have a compromise where the army decides that they will not requisition private homes, but they will rent private spaces from Bostonians. So they rent a few empty warehouses that they turn into barracks. And then they also rent all kinds of private homes. They rent whole houses for officers, but they also rent people's spare rooms and they rent their sheds and they rent their, you know, basements um, and whatever empty outhouse they have. And so the army ends up turning Bostonians basically into landlords for the entire four regiments of the British Army. And the army ends up spread all over the town of Boston. And when they do that, they suddenly really come to know their local neighbors pretty well. And one of the most amazing things I found is that in the 17 months or so between the time that the soldiers came and the shooting that comes to be known as the Boston Massacre happened, Within that 17 months, there were a number, about 40 total soldiers marry local women, about 100 military families have children whom they baptize in the local churches, often asking civilians to act as their godparents. They um, have children sometimes without marrying, and soldiers also desert and become part of local communities. So in that time that they're supposedly occupying the city of Boston or the town of Boston, what they're really doing is becoming part of that town. 
So by the time the shooting happens, it really is, as I say, a shooting between neighbors and not strangers. It's hard to imagine in a town of 16,000, you have 2,500 brand new people um, coming into the town with nowhere to live. Yes. That, that's a major problem. It is. And it creates both conflicts and, you know, these relationships, right? That they don't always love each other. That's for sure. So is this considered an occupation? Well, so that, that's a great question, too, because some people did. Absolutely. And really political people, primarily political guys, really do think of it as an occupation. That's, that's really the story that Paul Revere's engraving shows us. And all these other Sons of Liberty complain, oh, Boston, it's, it's occupied. It's like it's become a garrison town, they say. They get really upset about it. They hate being asked for identification. I mean, basically, there are these patrols on the street. And, you know, the these guys are like, what do you mean? You're asking me my business when I'm walking around the street at night. But on the other hand, you know, there are all of these other people who don't think of this as an occupation at all. They think of this as an opportunity. And that's actually largely the young women who live in Boston, because Boston actually has a disparity between men and women. So many young men were killed in the Seven Years' War that there are actually more unmarried women living in Boston than there are marriageable men. And so when these men, all these soldiers, even though some of them are married, when they come to town, they look like potential marriage material. So I think of this actually much more of a story that's like Pride and Prejudice that, you know, for people who remember when the regiment comes to Maryton and Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice, those daughters at Longbourn are so excited, right? They see this as a great opportunity for marriage. Mr. Bennett is pretty unhappy about it, but the girls think it's awesome. And that's basically the same thing that happens in Boston. In your research, you examined a number of families, and there are some really compelling family stories. Would you mind telling one or two of those stories, uh, maybe ones especially important to you, interesting to you? Sure. Um, let me tell you two. Uh, there are so many, but I'll, I'll choose two. So one a little somber and the other um, a little more jolly, I think. Um, the somber one is a woman that I, I came to feel particularly connected to, the woman who opens my book, whose name is Jane Chambers. I came to feel really connected with her first because I was able to trace her, this probably illiterate woman across what are now three separate countries and many voyages. So she starts in Ireland and then she is brought on a troop ship with her husband and at least one child to Halifax. And then she comes to Boston. But after several years of researching this book, I discovered not only doctor's bills for the care of her children, but a receipt from the town of Boston for the burial of a soldier's child during a smallpox spread, a, a soldier's child whom I came to realize was, was hers. And I found really moving that Jane Chambers' child had been buried and forgotten and without a name until this moment that I started really paying attention to military families and their place in the Boston Massacre. So thinking about Jane as she tried to move around the um, 
British Empire and keep her family together, not always successfully, was for me a very moving and very personal relationship that I made in this book. My second story is um, is actually of a soldier uh, who is just this delightful rake. Um, and I like him in part because he's, he's sort of wicked and he's a real literary figure. So he wrote a lot and he was a lot of fun. So his name is William Clark. He's a private in the 29th regiment. He's very charming. He's quite irrepressible. And as I said, he has these literary ambitions. So soon after he comes to Boston, he publishes a play that he calls The Miser. And then he has an affair with a Boston woman. He marries her after her grandfather, who happened to be one of the Sons of Liberty. Her grandfather catches them in bed together. And then the next year, he wrote a tell-all memoir, and he publicly called out his in-laws for all the grief that they gave him. So unfortunately, neither the play nor the memoir has survived, but even the titles are incredibly funny. Oh, very interesting. So the Sons of Liberty. Uh, I don't want to use the word fringe, <laughs> but, but the group was definitely on the outskirts. What was their range of influence? And, and are there examples of the Sons of Liberty being able to win the support or empathy of these British troops coming into Boston? That's a really interesting question. So the Sons of Liberty are both radical, I'd say, in their sense of betrayal. They're feeling that the British Empire owed them a lot more than they were getting. And they were that's the place where they're kind of on the fringe. But they tended to be overall actually fairly, you know, middling, you know, comfortably off people, right? So they're not, you know, they're they're not sort of radically they're not socially radical, I guess I'd say, right? There are people like John Adams, of course, um, as I said, Paul Revere, people who are in the center in many ways of Boston society. So I would not say that um, their politics made a lot of sense to most of the soldiers. And in fact, you can really see it with William Clark, who whose story of being, you know, being found in bed with this young woman, the Boston newspapers, the radical papers pick up and they say, this is exactly what we mean about how horrible the British Empire is. And the story he writes about it is like, this is what I mean about how awful these old people my in-laws are. He doesn't care about the politics at all. It's very, very clear. But I would say that at the same time, these Sons of Liberty had friendships with many of the officers they saw each other as you know as friends they actually all joined the same um chapter of masons right so we have a chapter of of the masons that has both one of these officers and revere as sort of you know head honchos in it it's kind of an amazing thing so they never convince soldiers of their politics but they don't think that these politics should Divide them socially. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org. 
The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd like to ask you about Thomas Gage, uh, commander of British forces in America. Can you talk a little bit more about who he was and maybe offer your insight on, on what he thought about this occupation? So Gage is, as you say, a fairly complicated figure. He became, at the end of the Seven Years' War, the head of all of the British troops in North America. So he's sitting in New York primarily just writing letters. <laughs> And spending a lot of time trying to figure out what's happening in North America with all of these different troops. And so when when the governor of Massachusetts first asks for troops as a police force, he warns him. He's like, this might not be a good idea. Urban policing is hard. And the governor says, yeah, well, I need to make it work anyway. So he says, OK, if you say so, he sends them on. And he's kind of hopeful that it's all going to be okay. And in fact, at the summer of 1769, before the shooting happens, he writes back to the governor. He says, don't you think that we could maybe remove the troops now? I think it's all calmed down. It would be great to get them out of here before there's a problem. And the governor says, no, I need at least half. You can't take them all. So he leaves the troops. And, you know, that's a source of real regret, I think, all the way through. He's he is also completely um, dismissive of any of the Sons of Liberty's politics. He thinks that they're naive and obnoxious and ridiculous. And so he's he's often quite intemperate and angry. He himself marries a North American woman. Um, and so it's not that he dismisses all Americans. He is just he just thinks that people should have a loyalty to the British Empire that is kind of unquestioned, as he himself does as a soldier. And so the idea that you can question your relationship to the empire, which is really what the Sons of Liberty are doing, really annoys him. So he he does um, 
watch what happens with the shooting with horror. He he's quite annoyed at the commanding officer and the captain in charge that night forever letting it get to a place of bloodshed. He he did understand that this was going to be a political disaster. So then he tries during the trials, right? So and and these trials are of course so complicated because here's John Adams, a son of liberty, defending the soldiers. So he is constantly writing these letters to the governor saying, I think that this is how the lawyer should do the defense. He's watching very, very closely. And when the soldiers are acquitted, he feels justified. He thinks that he did it just just right. Um, and he helps the soldiers leave. And then a couple of years later, of course, he himself becomes the military governor of Massachusetts after the Boston Tea Party, which is in 1773, and the coercive acts, which are the acts that the, the parliament passes in response to the Boston Tea Party. They take away civilian government and they impose Gage as the new military governor of Massachusetts. And he's not very happy about it. His ideas about Massachusetts have not become any warmer in the three previous years. So he himself is now living in Boston and it's under his rule that troops go marching out into the Massachusetts countryside looking for armaments that spark the battles of Lexington and Concord, which become enough of a disaster that Gage himself is recalled to, um, to Britain soon afterwards. So it, Boston, I think he thinks of as his downfall. Interesting. So can we talk about the events leading up to March 5th, 1770? Uh, the days leading up to it. Were, were things dramatically escalating? Uh, was it a combustible situation ready to explode? Or were things developing at a little bit more of a subtle pace than that? I think it's it's all of those things, if I might be allowed to say that. So as I said that summer before um, there there was an attempt on the part of Gage and some of the other military men to try to leave Boston. So they were like, well, if we could get out before there's a disaster, that would be great because they feel sure a disaster is going to happen. Not because actually the Bostonians are particularly horrible or their own soldiers are particularly rambunctious, but because actually, as you said in the beginning, having that many people, another 2,500 people sort of mushed into a town of 16,000 that's on a peninsula is just likely to make for tensions, right? It's a lot of people living close together. And so every day I write in this book is like a roll of the dice, you know, is, is, is any relationship going to escalate or will it calm down? And those, every, every interaction feels like that over and over again through 1769. People are like, Oh, is the car going to tip over now? It doesn't quite. And certainly there are events that happen. Um, that the political tensions have not died away in 1769. So, for example, there is a customs informer, somebody who informs the officials about smuggling, who ends up sort of in the heart of a riot. He shoots out of his window. Um, he kills a child, an 11-year-old named um, Christopher Snyder, and his 
the the death of this child becomes an enormous sort of cause celebre and there's a huge um, funeral procession through the center of Boston and the the soldier so, or the officers in charge of the soldiers that night are watching and they're thinking, should we get involved? No, we better not. So as it happens that night, the soldiers never do get involved. But looking back later, people start saying, oh, that's the beginning of the end here, even though it's not really. So what happens throughout that February and March of 1770 is that, you know, it's a long winter. People are tired. There are a lot of conflicts. There are also a lot of relationships between civilians and soldiers that are not conflictual at all. People are getting married and they're having children and they're borrowing coal and sugar from each other in all of those ways. But after the shooting happens, and I can describe that in a minute, when people go back to try to figure out how did we get to this moment that there are people dead in the street, they look to put together a coherent story. And so part of the story they put together is the story of conflicts. And one of the major conflicts that is written about right in that moment in March of 1770 and becomes part of the story that we know of the Boston Massacre has to do with a number of off-duty soldiers who are looking for work and they stop by what's called a rope walk, a place where people make ropes and they um, are insulted by one of the people that they talk to, they come back and there's kind of a two or three day long brawl that happens. And there's there's some sense that possibly people are still brawling in the street that night of um, March 5th, 1770, although the soldiers involved in the shooting are not the ones who were ever involved in the brawling. So it's a little hard to say that that's really a tight relationship, but that's part of the story that people are telling later on. Hmm. So who were the victims of the massacre? So there are five people who are um, killed. Three die immediately. A fourth one dies that night. The fifth lingers a few more days. Um, And they range in age from 17 to, I think, somewhere in his 40s, the oldest one is. And the one that we probably know best, of course, is a mixed race sailor named Crispus Attucks, becomes one of the most famous of the people who are killed that night, um, in part because his, his memory is resuscitated in the 19th century as the first martyr of the revolution. But the other people who die are, um, there's a 17-year-old apprentice, there's another Irish laborer um, named Patrick Carr and a few other, you know, primarily laboring men um, who end up dying that night. And then another, I don't know, half dozen people or so are are injured and live with those injuries the rest of their lives, splintered arms with bones that that have gotten shot in them and other things. How long does it take for the whole thing to happen? So here, here is the skeleton of what we know about what happened that night. Start there. We know that there was a sentry on duty in front of the customs house. He had a little sentry box that he stood in and made sure that nobody came in and out of that door. And as he stood there that evening, it's very dark. It's worth remembering that Boston doesn't have streetlights. So there are, um, there's some, 
snow on the ground and any light that's coming out of windows maybe glinted off that snow, but it's it's pretty dark. But he sees some people walk by, some of whom he knows, locals, chats with them a bit. But eventually a number of maybe kids, some teenagers come and they start hassling him, which happens with some frequency with young people in the streets. But he gets a little nervous this century. He's talking to another local woman who is possibly a barmaid in the bar across the street. She comes out to find out what's going on and they're chatting and he's like, oh, this is getting a little much for me. So he calls for some backup and the backup comes in the form of a handful of soldiers led by the captain of the day, a man named Thomas Preston. And they come marching through the street and the civilians are not particularly anxious to see them. In fact, one man who knew one of the soldiers, one of the locals, walks up to him and says, what's going on here? And the soldier says, I have no idea. I was just told to come out. So they march up, they surround the sentry, and the captain tells the townspeople who are in the street to disperse. And at this point, honestly, our eyewitness testimony varies hugely. Are we talking 30 people in the street? Are we talking 200 people in the street? People have said all of those numbers. So it's a little hard to know how big a crowd there was then. We do know there was some kind of crowd and we know that the officer told them to leave and they didn't. And we also know that some of the church bells start ringing. Now, church bells can ring in Boston for a number of reasons. One of them is as an alarm. But we don't know. Was that an alarm to tell people to come out to the street so that they could beat up these soldiers? Or was it, which is also quite common, was it a fire alarm? And some people believe that it really is a fire alarm, and they come out with their leather buckets looking for the fire. Somebody pulls out the fire engine. And other people start streaming into the street, carrying sticks and looking for a fight. So we've got a little bit of everything. The people, however, do not disperse and they're standing around. And you have to remember, it's quite dark and they're quite close to these soldiers. And somebody hears the word fire. And we don't know what that word is. It could have been, of course, a command from the captain to the soldiers to fire it could have been, as some people claim, a call about a possible, you know, conflagration. People are saying, where's the fire? Is there a fire? Other people claim that they're hearing taunts coming from the civilians in the street that are being thrown at the soldiers saying, you don't dare fire. Right? You daren't fire at us. At some point, though, some soldier hears this word fire and fires. And finally, when the smoke clears, what they end up seeing are three people dead in the snow right in front of what's now the old state house, what was then the, um, the townhouse, another one dying and, um, well, two, two more dying, one, one quite close to death. And that's really all we know. We know that and we know that when the civilians and the soldiers looked at each other that night on the street. They knew each other pretty well. Some of the soldiers who were part of the shooting that night were indeed lo married to local women. 
right? So they're not looking at these Bostonians and thinking, oh, we just want to mow them all down. But they are thinking, I know these people. And some of them may be thinking, and I don't like them too much. Those soldiers that had those connections in the community, did they get sympathy from the people they had developed these relationships with after they had participated in this in the massacre? Or were they kind of ostracized from those relationships? Yeah. So the soldiers themselves who are involved in this shooting, right, go, they're immediately brought to jail that night. And they actually stay in the Boston jail until they're trial, which is not until the following fall. And then as soon as it's over, the army is afraid, actually, that they are going to stay in Boston, that they've made a close, close enough set of relationships to those Bostonians that they might want to stay. And so worried are the is the army about desertion that they actually keep these men basically under lock and key and march them onto a boat and sail them up the coast or um, down the coast, sorry, to New Jersey to join the rest of their regiments. So those men themselves never are given the opportunity even to stay in Boston, although it seems like the army thinks that they might want to. But other other men do stay. Other other soldiers, um, when the time goes for them to be redeployed, and many of them are redeployed right after this shooting, desert in large numbers to try to stay with their um, new families. This is probably going to sound like a silly question, (laughs) but I remember staring at that Paul Revere uh, picture when I was a kid in school. And anytime in the middle of a boring lecture, when you're a kid and you have the opportunity to look at an actual picture, uh, you do it. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, There's a little dog uh, just sitting there docilely. Is there a significance to that dog? Right. Everyone loves the dog. Everyone asks about the dog. I will say that art historians are not completely positive about what's going on with this dog. I see the dog. The, do- the dog is usually a symbol of loyalty, right? And so here I see this dog as the symbol of, of lost loyalty. I mean, the dog looks pretty, pretty lost, staring out at the viewer, looking pretty pathetic and sad, its tail down between its legs. So this is, I think, part of the story that Revere is trying to tell us about what happens when a king's troops shoot his own subjects, right? That this is the end of loyalty. That's what he's trying to show us. And that's what that dog is indicating to us. I'm sure another question you get has to do with John Adams. On the surface, it appears as though he's switching sides. He's a son of liberty. What would motivate him to defend these soldiers? Exactly. It's a really kind of confusing story on the surface for exactly that reason. These The Sons of Liberty have been opposed to these soldiers all the way along, and now here they are defending them. So the but it's a very careful political calculus that brings... John Adams to defend the soldiers and for which he has the full support actually of the Sons of Liberty because they are really determined to show that they did nothing wrong here. The question about the Boston Massacre very quickly becomes a question of blame, 
right? So who is at fault? And it's really important to the Sons of Liberty to show that the town of Boston is not at fault. There might have been these riots earlier in 1768, but really they want to say the governor completely overreacted by bringing these soldiers in. And it's the governor's fault and the fault of the crown and its officials that these soldiers were here at all and did this kind of dreadful carnage. So part of what they want to do is say, we are so high minded, we can take the moral high road that we're going to find our best lawyers to defend these soldiers. So part of that's part of what they want to do. So part of it's kind of a PR ploy, right? But part of it is they want to make sure that actually the defense turns out just right. Because the defense that Adams has to come up with is that these soldiers were shooting in self-defense, that they were scared for their lives, and so therefore they had to shoot their guns. But at the same time, he doesn't want to say they're scared because Bostonians are such terrifying people. So he has to come up with the story that says, well, actually, the people in the crowd really were these, you know, people of color or these Irish people or these young apprentices for all of which he uses names that I would not repeat on any podcast and says they're not real Bostonians. The people that scared these soldiers are all these outsiders. They're not really part of us, but real Bostonians actually are equally horrified at what happened here. But they are the ones who are really law abiding and trying to mind their own business. And so he's trying to get the soldiers off without at the same time indicting the town of Boston. And that's, that's difficult. And so that's why the Sons of Liberty were like, we need our best lawyer to be able to tell that story. And he wins. Fascinating. So was the Boston Massacre an immediate catalyst for something bigger? Or did it simmer for a while? Was it used as a rallying cry? It takes a little while. It does become used as a rallying cry, but again, only among the most kind of radical people who already are kind of unhappy about their relationship with Britain. I mean, one thing I found particularly fascinating is that after the shooting happened, locals continued to make families with soldiers. Half the marriages I found in the local court records happen or, mar- or church records happened after the shooting. So it's not some immediate watershed event, but eventually it does become meaningful, right? Eventually the shooting gets sort of reincarnated into something that comes to be known as the Boston Massacre, right? That's part of the publicity or really might be what we call part of the propaganda of Revere's own picture, starting, of course, with the title that he gives it. So Eventually, it does become known as the site of bloodshed. It comes to be used as um, an indication for how how out of control the British crown is. Not the king himself, but the kind of larger ministry, the way that they are treating colonials. Um, so that's the politics that happened. But but I think the real meaning and the kind of more subtle but just as important meaning that comes out of this has to do with what happens when those troops are redeployed. And so when these soldiers have to leave and these families that they made are faced with this 
question. Are they going to leave with the troops? Are soldiers going to stay and desert? What happens to these families that it becomes really personal when they start thinking about how they are part of the British family? Right. So we know at the time in the 18th century, people talked a lot about government as family. They talked about the king as father. And this was sort of a metaphor for them. But in fact, when there are British imperial troops that are living in people's houses and sometimes even in their beds, they think, oh, this is what it means to be part of the British Empire. And when the shooting happens, they think, oh, this is what it means to be part of the British Empire. And so as the years go on through the Tea Party and then eventually Lexington and Concord, people start to feel like, okay, I have to choose. I have to choose between loyalty to the crown or loyalty to Massachusetts. In 1770, nobody feels like they have to make that choice. There's no such thing as loyalty. But what loyalty will come to mean becomes meaningful. So why Boston? I mean, the Boston Massacre, the Boston Tea Party, was there something in the water? (laughs) That, that bred this radicalism or did this this radical thought exist equally in other places, but it just didn't happen to be a part of such pivotal historical moments like it was in Boston? Yeah, I, I think there's both. I mean, there are, of course, also political radicals living all up and down, what, you know, the, the eastern seaboard. So in Virginia, in um, Pennsylvania, in all, you know, lots of places, they do exist. There's only a few kind of urban centers in North America at this moment. Boston happens to be one of them, like Philadelphia or New York. So some of it is that this is a place where people are coming in and out. There are ways in which people feel both more connected to the British Empire because there's so much trade that happens, so many people and ideas that travel through the port. And of course, they have so many other ideas to start thinking about. So some of it's about port cities. But some of it I do think is that Boston is, um, if one can say, a little unique. Boston is a little bit different in that it imagines itself as a kind of separate space. Nobody thought, oh, Boston is like New York. It's like Philadelphia. I mean, all these colonies thought of themselves as having separate relationships to the rest of the world, including to the British Empire. And so much of the way Boston thought of about thought of itself is, as another historian has said recently, as its own city state. It thinks of itself as unique. And so it responds in ways that protect its own autonomy. And I do think that's part of what's going on there. Was there ever any compensation offered to the families of the victims? Were they looked upon charitably by the people of Boston at all? A um, little bit. They get some they, they get some poor relief later. Some of the people who are injured actually get a little bit of help too, a little what we might call disability payments. Um, later on, they get a, a big burial. They're sort of made famous in that way, but we have no sense that anybody looked after their families. We're like, oh, let's help you. So no, I would say for the most part, um, there's not, there's nobody sets up a fund, right? To try to compensate um, those families the way, you know, we see after 9-11 or something like that. 
Uh, Paul Revere, we know his important, we, we've of course talked about his important involvement in this historical moment through his engraving. But do we know what Revere thought of the trial? Was he satisfied in the, the aftermath of the massacre? Did he believe he was able to get his point across in a successful way? Really interesting question. We don't know, actually. He, we know very little of his own feelings about this illustration. Um, so, you know, he, he continues to push along with other Sons of Liberty to, um, to redefine Massachusetts' relationship with the British Empire. We do know that other people, Sam Adams in particular, is not thrilled with the kind of political decision that the rest of the Sons of Liberty made to try to take this moral high ground. He says, well, maybe there's still some way that we can, you know, really punish these soldiers. They sort of deserve it. Um, but he doesn't get a lot of traction, which makes me think that Paul Revere probably was like, okay, we are moving on. There are new fights to be had. Um, and he, he tells his story and it, and it works, right? I mean, that is the story that has stuck with us all these years, which is amazing. Absolutely. So one final question. Uh, was there anything that especially struck you or surprised you while researching this book? Yeah, I, I had so many moments with this research because it was it was so exciting to do. I, I've never written a book that was so exciting to research. This started, in fact, because I read in one of the most common sets of sources, still reprinted, actually still in many of those textbooks we were talking about. Um, I, I came across a mention of a soldier's wife in um, a collection of depositions taken right after the shooting called The Short Narrative of the Horde Massacre. And I had not realized that soldiers had wives. I think I was really surprised by this. And as I started looking, I thought, oh, these these military families are everywhere. So the very first day that I went into the Boston archives and I looked in the church records, I found two marriages between soldiers and civilians. And I thought, wow, the story is just lying here in plain sight, waiting for me to pick it up. And I felt like in every archive I looked, I thought, oh, this is going to be hunting a needle in a haystack. But it turned out that the sources were just lying there, that once we started paying attention to the idea of families, they were just waiting there um, for someone to look at them. Definitely a very unique perspective that you've been able to uh, approach these events with. Uh, How can people learn more about the book and more about you? So a couple of places. Um, the book is available anywhere, um, bookstores, Amazon, you can can find it um, anywhere. I have a website, serenazabin.com, which tells you more about the book and more about me and also about a computer game that I'm developing with some other people based on some of this research. So there's a lot more information out there at serenazabin.com if you want to take a look. Oh, can I ask you about the game? Absolutely. So the game is um, it, the game is a, a immersive three dimensional you know video experience. 
in which the player is asked to join a committee put together by the town of Boston the day after the shooting, and you're sent on quests to go find people who saw something or think that they saw something that happened the night of the shooting. And because we know so little about it, it's a chance for people to collect this evidence, to take a look at it, to try to sort it through. And then once they have found enough people and found out their relationships to each other so that they can maybe assess the evidence a little bit, they bring these depositions back to the selectmen who asked for them. And then you kind of see a recreation of the Boston massacre based on the evidence that you brought back. So the game is still in development. We are hoping to be able to put a short version of it into the old state house museum in Boston um, in a year or so. And then we're working on a larger kind of open world um, exploration of this very meticulously reconstructed 18th century Boston. Wow, so- sounds amazing. Well, keep me posted when it's available, and, I- and I'll announce it on, on an episode here. Great. So thank you again for-, for doing this with me. It's been great. Thank you. Thanks for reaching out. I really appreciate it. Take care. Again, I have been speaking to Serena Zabin. Her book is called The Boston Massacre, A Family History. This has been another episode of the most notorious podcast broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. Again, I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.